This is Marcel. And this is Isabel. And this is the Top Rank Podcast. For any new listeners, this podcast is an exploratory research platform centered on individuals of diverse backgrounds who are driving, shaping, and challenging their fields and the world around them. We are so excited and honored to have Salome Asega on the show today. Interdisciplinary artist, professor, nonprofit co-founder, all-around Renaissance woman, and someone we both admire deeply um, as a person and as a friend. So we're super excited to get to learn more about her and what she does. So welcome, Salome. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. I've been a fan for so long, so I'm happy to be joining the mix. I'm I'm, I'm blushing. (laughs) Blushing. That makes us feel good. So I feel like I'd love, I mean, I gave a very cursory introduction to who you are, but I'd love to hear from you. Who are you and what do you do? Yeah. Um, So I think there, there may be like three bags I carry at all times. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. (laughs) So I, uh, I'm an artist um, and I make mostly interactive work through a a participatory design process. Uh, I'm an educator. Um, Like you said, I teach at Parsons Um, and I guess, um, what was my third bag? I'm a researcher. Yeah. So (laughs) at the same time that I'm making work about um, new media and technology, I'm thinking critically about the tools I'm using and trying to package that learning for um, organizations, institutions, other artists in my community. Amazing. So you say participatory design and I also another concept that you work with in your practice is speculative speculative design. I was wondering if you can kind of talk a bit more about what those concepts are, like what they mean to you in in the work that you do. Yeah, so I I actually wanted to read something from um, Dunn and Raby who are a speculative designer duo and they kind of wrote the book on this um this research and artistic uh, practice. So um, they wrote a book in 2013 published through MIT Press called Speculative Everything. And so this is just, this comes from the first chapter. So it is hard to say what today's dreams are. It seems they have been downgraded to hopes. Hope that we will not allow ourselves to become extinct. Hope that we can feed ourselves. Hope that there will be room for us to all, for, for us all in this tiny planet. There are no more visions. We don't know how to fix the planet and ensure our survival. We are just hopeful. Uh, as Frederick J- uh, as Frederick Jameson famously remarked, it is now easier for us to imagine the end of the world than an alternative to capitalism. Yet alternatives are exactly what we need. We need to dream new dreams for the 21st century as those of the 20th century rapidly fade. Uh, but what role can design play? So... This is where speculative design enters. And Dunn and Raby say, one uh, one is to use design as a means of speculative speculating how things could be, how things could be. This form of design thrives on imagination and aims us uh, to open up new perspectives on what are uh, sometimes called wicked problems, to create spaces for discussion and debate about alternative ways of being 
and to inspire and encourage people's imagine imaginations to flow freely, freely. So I think the idea here is that we've, again, we've are no longer in this place of dreaming and we're just hopeful. And so speculative design comes in to get us back to a, a place of play to, um, to imagine and to create alternatives. Wow, that, that Jameson quote really smacked I me know. in the face. Because <laughs> it's true, though. I mean, the, the world is ending, right? Right. I mean, we can we can talk about that and also dreaming of stymieing that from happening. But wow, I was wondering, like, if you could give an example then of like what a speculative design practice for you like looks like and maybe like I had an idea of maybe taking are there like any specific exercises or prompts like taking us through like what that could look like for you or us maybe yeah I also just to go back a little bit I was thinking something you just said just reminded me um I'm teaching this studio class with American artists this semester at Parsons and something that came up um just this week was a student was saying um I don't know how to think uh I don't know how I should be thinking about my artistic practice or what I should be making because the news right now is so heavy and I feel like we have, you know, the estimates of like 30 years left on earth are feeling increasingly real. Mm. And so what does that mean for my practice? What I what should I be saying in this moment? Something about um, whatever I deliver feels like it's for the end. And so it was interesting for me to to, to hear that and say like, yeah, we're all we could potentially be in this moment where we're all making to be the period at the end of the sentence, you know? And so Wow, yeah. Yeah, it was really heavy and it was yeah, but so I think for me where um how I employ a speculative lens to my work is through uh mostly a workshop process where I'm prompting people to think about things in different ways, so providing a little bit of scaffolding. It's really hard to just ask people outright like what do you think the future is going to look like? Like, what? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I think I have to um, come up with games or specific questions, um, move people through um, specific, maybe technical exercises. And one example of this is through a project I have um, in collaboration with Ayodomolo Okunsende called Iapo Repository, where we get people to design a future artifacts made by and for people of African descent. And the way they generate these artifacts is through a card game where you're given different parameters in which to think about the future. So you're given a, a, a card that drives the narrative of, of a future world. You're given a card that describes the domain in which you're designing for, and you're given an object card which describes some physical characteristic that your future object must have. So let's say you're given um, revolutionary as one card, you're given um, education as another, and then you're given um, has a motor. So now you have to somehow develop a revolutionary educate educational tool that somehow incorporates a motor somewhere in it, you know, and and then you sketch it out on a document that like is gridded and it has a description box. So it's very easy for someone to just jump in without knowing. Um, who doesn't have any sort of specific design training, they know how to go about designing something, right? We've given them some scaffolding. Right. Wow. Well, I see what you mean now also about the 
element of play where it's like these topics are so heavy that it, it almost becomes impossible to like think creatively when you're dealing with like the larger existential question. Mm-hmm. I even feel like what your students said, I feel that about my own work also for sure and about everything that I'm doing. So I, I can relate. Mm-hmm. But um, I'm, I'm really curious when you say that a lot of your work is about um, situating like new technologies, but also thinking critically about them. What kinds of technologies are the are those, and like what kind of critical thinking are you doing? Mm-hmm. I mean, so I in my own practice, I've, I've used things like VR, AR, some basic physical computing. So uh, you know, creating circuits. Um, I've done some stuff with Connect that does some body tracking. Um, and I think for me, because I have, I, I, I for me, I, I have felt like I've had a, an immense privilege to access these tools in the first place and to know about them. I, there's always this moment in a project where I like do the Wizard of Oz, like open up the back door and like show you what's really good. Like that's so important to me. Like not everyone needs to be a technologist. Not everyone needs to be a coder. But I think it's important you know how these things work. And I, I you know, I think most of the technology that I work with is is doesn't have as large of um, a social implication as maybe like an AI or more data-driven works do. But I still think regardless of what you're doing, like you should, you should not make things look like a black box. You should explain what's happening, you know? Um, Yeah. And I'm sure that's like relegating things to a black box. It's just like a very easy cop-out way to yeah create more barriers to entry for people to yeah, participate in this type of creation process i mean i'm curious to hear like if you could take a super step back like maybe decades ago and learn about like how the way that you grew up like how did you come to even be interested in the in the intersection between like art and technology and i, I guess i would even say like social justice it seems like all these vectors are part of the work that you do like how did this become part of who you are mm-hmm yeah, I mean, I, I the story for me always starts with being like the child of immigrants, right? Um, I think that I learned so much of of how I move through the world is so much influenced by how I, I've seen my parents move through the world. So when they first moved to the U.S., it was they got settled. And the first thing on the to-do list was how do we help other folks get here safely? And so our house was, when I was younger, was very much like a place for people to roll through you know, they're now in a new country. My parents are helping them get settled. They're crashing on the couch. And I just was, I was just born into community, you know, like I had a, an extended aunts and uncles list. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so for me, just caring for others is, it's like foundation to most of my work um, and working with others. Um, and, you know, on my mom's side, I have four uncles who work in technology. Um, they're all engineers. And I I think that they, from a very young age, they were all very encouraging with me to um, enter the sciences, enter t- technology. And I was very against it because I never felt like it was for me. I also was like a Y2K kid and, you know, not a lot of that marketing around like science and tech was for like the gadgets were a lot, mostly like targeted for boys, right? So for sure, yeah. Um, so I was like really into like my boy bands and, you know, it was like, no, I want to like make art. And I didn't know where that would take me, but I started making work. And then somehow I, d- I think it was like after college, I had been um, 
traveling between Ethiopia and the West Bank and I was meeting with all these artists and I was like, wouldn't it be great to find a way to like build a platform that connects all these people that are doing really important work in their communities? And I was like, I want to go back to school and um, do some web dev. Like I really wanted to make websites <laughs> and platforms. And um, when I got back to school, I just entered this whole new world because again, I was I had access to just a bunch of emerging technology and I just fell into all of it with like a really open heart. And I think um, found a new way to tell stories. So I, I don't make websites. That's <laughs> <laughs> fast. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, no, it's, I just always love to hear the origin story of how people's, you know, upbringings have shaped them because I feel like it's people that we are now, we have this sort of, we change, we have this sort of a continuous thread line. So that's, that's like really lovely to hear. I feel like AR and VR are buzzwords just like AI that I guess I would love to like a bit more clarity on like what that means and how that figures into your practice. Mm -hmm. So that's like question A. But something that I've been thinking about a lot just as a person of the 21st century is obviously like data and the fact that like our behaviors and our very like life existence is being sold and auctioned off. I mean, obviously without us profiting from any of it or getting getting a share of any of that, um, but we're being categorized in ways and parcel, our identity is being parceled out in ways that we don't know about. It's something that's like deeply concerning to me and like obviously lots of people, like just like the whole surveillance capitalism apparatus. So I find like your approach to design and this idea of speculative design, of course, I mean... As an academic, I love to critique and think about the problems all day, but that's so played out at the point where, like, the world is ending. So I was like, I'm being a little selfish here, but, like, I would love to even maybe do a potentially collaborate on a speculative mm. <laughs> exercise mm. on how we could imagine taking taking our identities back, taking data back. Like, how do we, like, create mm -hmm. a more is it even possible to create a more just big data ecosystem in a technology apparatus that is so built on kind of like you know this idea of like a, an equal exchange that isn't really equal that was mm -hmm. a long-winded way to say mm -hmm. but I don't know if you have any prompts that maybe we could even like go through and like brainstorm together what that could look like yeah I mean that is I mean this is like our civil rights question, right? Like yeah, right now for wow. us, like there are so many people who are trying to figure out this exact thing. Um, and so that question reminded me of um, what is a potential solution called data trust. And uh, data trusts currently don't take, a there isn't like a specific form for what a data trust is, but the underlying philosophy rests on trying to find a way to share data that safe it's trying to share data safely securely and fairly and so again that's not specific but the idea right is that you're um you're it it's human centered right that it, it goes back to your question of like people have been profiting off of what we're putting out there and so how do we also have a foot in this game to make sure that we're safe um so i mean a reference that i love to pull out for people is the Open Data Institute, uh, which was co-founded by S Sir Tim Berners-Lee, who you might know as um, the person who invented the web. <laughs> so, oh, <whoa. laughs> oh, I, I, I didn't did, know I that, did but thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> so he um, he and along of, uh, with uh, along with a bunch of other folks have started Open Data Institute, and they have a bunch of amazing resources on their site. Um, and they also um, work with governments and large organizations to kind of help them get smart uh, on some of these things. But uh, the way that they've talked about data trust, and if I, let me pull it up. There are a couple of forms that they have pulled out. And data trust, this is this like a broad category of, or is it like a, like an organ, the name of an organization in particular? It's like a, it's like a potential solution, but it's basically just trying to find a way to share data equitably mm. and safely. But it doesn't have an exact form. But the forms that they've listed here is that a data trust can be a repeatable framework of terms and mechanisms. So like a set of agreed upon like relationships, a data trust as a mutual organization, a data trust as a legal structure, a data trust as a store of data, a data trust as public oversight of data access. And something that has come out of um, just digging around um, on their platform and other places is this idea of um, uh, of governance, right? So like in the same way that academia has internal review boards, uh, what if we had data review boards, you know, um, independent governance structures that uh, review and monitor the way collectors share with third party, uh, with third parties, right? So, I mean, there's a lot of speculation around like all the ways that this can happen. I think on some front, yes, there needs to be a, a set of like, laws right and policies that we like cover some really basic rights right. <laughs> yeah and like some states West have done here. that i think but like like california's yeah just passed a law and like i think nevada isn't, isn't nevada i think has has a law like a bill or something on the table maybe i'm so but, bad with following my home state <laughs> it's true <laughs> it's all good it's all good um yeah, no, that's it, it, the data trust idea is something that's really important for me to explore. Yeah, I'm just trying to just try to think about, you know, the name of the game of being part of like society in the 21st century is having some sort of behavioral manifestation of our identity existing out there in the atmosphere. And it's it's concerning. I mean, just all the different ways that like subprime mortgages were given to people based on these like data broker profiles that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm you know, are comprised of with people of color with low incomes. Like mm-hmm. there's a lot of ways that this data can be used for um, th- that has already been using to have n- negative consequences, save from all like the stuff that happened on Facebook and like Cambridge Analytica. We don't have to belabor that point. But yeah, this is something that I'm definitely thinking of thinking about because it is, you know, aren't, aren't people saying like data is more profitable than oil or it is like the the oil of our generation? Mm-hmm. Who, who oh. knows? Yeah. Who knows? It's um. Yeah, I mean, I times. feel like it's like a big question, also, which is obviously one of your one of your bags of just of education and like letting people know what's at stake. And I feel like for us, we're in a kind of strange generational place because we're old enough to have grown up without things like smartphones and mm-hmm. social media and like constant internet access, but also young enough to have it be like quite normalized. Mm-hmm. So I think that like how, you know, whatever they are, Gen Z, <laughs> like whoever's after us, um, how like narratives and, and knowledge is produced around what is at stake with data will be key. Like um, I, for the past year, not anymore, but um, was working at an advertising agency. And like, I was really surprised by the way that, that 
the downsides of technology were not really discussed. You know, like there wasn't really a critical conversation about it. It was always like, oh, this amazing potential to like get more info and like do more and make more money. And Mm -hmm. there wasn't so much critical eye on like the potential, you know, ramifications of that. But this could actually be a good segue into talking about Power Plant, Mm -hmm. which you is an organization in Bushwick that you're involved in. And we would love to hear like how you got involved and, and, and what kind of educational work that space does. Yeah. So Power Plan has been around for almost five years, and it was uh, founded by An- Angelina Dream and Anibal Luque. And I came in um, after a series of pop-ups they did at Red Bull Studios, um, Hunter College, uh, East Harlem, Stream Gallery. I came in when they wanted to start up a, a, a brick-and-mortar space. And so... Uh, we're on the corner of Evergreen and Putnam and we do a series of things, but I think like the, the, the vision for power plan is that we offer and provide space um, for equitable representation in arts and technology. And so if that's where we start, we do this through a couple of different things. We offer, um, we have a, our community computer lab. We have uh, artist led workshops. We have an emerging collective incubator, um, we have our gallery space and artist in residency program. And then we also have part, we do partnerships with um, cultural institutions all around New York City. Uh, and so I think the pedagogical philosophy behind Power Plan is that it's all interest driven. So whatever you bring through the doors is enough. Like whoever you are and in, in whatever you're thinking about the day is a great place to start. And so we don't for the most part, we don't frame our classes as like an intro or a one to 101 of a specific creative software. Um, we frame it based on the potential output or deliverable, right? So it's not like a Photoshop 101. It's a how to build a logo. Yeah, interesting. So it's not about, it's not tech-centered. It's about what is the thing that you're trying to do? What are you trying to make? And so, and let's help you get there, right? Because I think when you frame it that way then you 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 a certain kind of student then comes to you right you pull a certain kind of maker and so the the people who come to us and especially the young people who who come to us um aren't aspirational in what they want to get done they're you know I was very much of a generation that was like when I grow up I want to be and they're not that they're Mm -hmm. like Hello, I am a fashion designer. Like, can you help me, you know, do this? Yeah. <laughs> wow, like, they yes. already like are asserting that. <laughs> yes. I love it. I love it. Yeah. And so I wanna help I wanna figure out how to help them get done what they want to do. And so yeah. That's really amazing. Especially the, the com- I'm I remember visiting once with Marcel and like the computer lab and having all the all that technology accessible mm-hmm. is is really cool. I remember going to the public library when I was a kid to go on the computer. And to do homework in high school to, to like write papers on the computers in the library. Yeah, they're always very and fill up shopping carts with things. Yeah, that I would never buy. That's what I would do at the sticky. library. <laughs> Good times. Well, um, like wh- why, like why youth? Like when did you start actually making that like a focus of your art practice? Is that something that just like, or- organically happened, or is it like a principle that's like has been always sort of central to yeah, the work? Because you've have your Parsons teaching gig too, so mm-hmm. you're very like a, a, you're very much an educator. Yeah, I I think it kind of organically happened. Again, when you have when you have access to certain material and also access to certain kinds of conversations, I, I mean, for me personally, I felt an urgency to make sure that I was having these conversations with people who look like me, 
mm. you know, um, and that they just didn't stay in in these like exclusionary spaces. And so it kind of naturally, I naturally fell into education. Um, but also like I really believe in young people. Like I've always been inspired by young people, even when I was young. Like um, I just think that there we have like a great potential to really shift th some things and the ways that we're thinking right now, the way younger people are um, like asserting themselves politically is like, it's amazing. And I just want to support that like full stop. For sure. Yeah. I was researching and, and getting up to date with your art practice prior to us having this conversation. And I noticed this mention of dissensus and multivocality mm -hmm. in a couple of your sort of artist bios. And I'm really interested in those words and what they mean. Yeah. So if you could talk a little more about why you, about like what these terms mean and what, how they inform the kind of work that you do. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it goes back to having like a, a participatory design background. And so when I'm working with people and working in community, I can't assert my vision, my individual vision for a project, right? So why I'm interested in dissensus and uh, multivocality is because I, I'm interested, for me, the, the whatever the project ends up looking like at the end is is great. But for me, so much of the work lies in the conversation, right? In the process leading up to that. Like that is so much of where the work is for me and what is exciting to me. So um, while I might bring an idea to a group of people, um, well, so all of my projects are collaborative, right? So I'm always working with people. And so while I might bring an idea to them, um, I'm also very prepared for them to push back. And that's exciting to me because everyone brings in their own networks, their own centrisms, um, their own visioning, right? And so that is that is really where my practice is for me. I wish there was a way for me to document that better, but... Yeah, to yeah, I was going to say like how do you when you're when you're presenting like a finished product, how does that process like manifest itself in the way that you express the the final thing or is it or, or is that like still what's being figured out maybe? I think that's what I'm still figuring out how to really highlight the process, but I think with Iapo repository for example, we collect so much through our workshops that every time we exhibit the work, we have like a whole new like suitcase of things you know to put up like whether it's drawings or very like first draft rapid prototypes that come out of our workshops our own final finished clean you know artifacts that we've made in our studio the films that we've made with people I, you know we have all kinds of recordings we have messy pdfs and jpegs and we have this like uh this digital library of uh, like files that people can kind of just insert a USB and it's like a dead drop library. So they can just dump all this messy material. Um, so that is a project where I feel I've like, I've been able to capture the, the most of what's been happening, but it's something I'm learning how to do. I actually want to hear more about the fin some of the finished artifacts and projects that have been produced out of, um, this particular initiative that you're doing? Like, what are some examples of artifacts that you guys have prototyped and all that? Yeah, so one thing we've made... Okay, something I really love is um, we have these affirmation pills and the person who designed them through our workshop was thinking about microaggressions. And it's like, wouldn't it be great if you could just give someone a pill and or like a vitamin-like supplement and they just like understand what you're going through and you didn't have to like explain it? 
And so she made <laughs> <laughs> she, she made up these things called affirmation pills that have um, that give you basically specialized Black history lessons. So things like rock and roll, civil rights, transatlantic slave trade, like just take the pill and you get it and stop asking me questions. And that's totally speculative and weird and far out and nothing we could actually produce in this moment. But <laughs> <laughs> that's what, yeah, I mean, that's, that's, a, that's, a, that's a good segue to a next, next question because you're, as you described yourself, you're a woman of many bags and many hats. And I feel like the position that you're currently in, you're currently still at the Ford Foundation of, mm -hmm. as a fellow. Mm -hmm is a site where is yeah it's a powerful site where funding is dispersed to create the research and the design projects of the present and the future so i would love to hear more about like what that role for you entails and how you see yeah just just to start there to say like what what is that what does that work entail yeah so i'm there mostly building strategy around art and technology so there are all these new ways artists are making Right. And so um, for me, I'm there trying to do a landscape nationally of the U.S. of the U.S. to understand how artists are making, what are the tools they're using, where are they accessing these tools, what do they need? Um, and then kind of presenting this in partnership with other foundations to um, to to better support this community of makers, because at the same time that they're telling stories, they're also critiquing the technology, right? And so there is a social justice lens to it. And so we need to support these artists like now, right? Because a lot of this stuff is happening very quickly. So I'm there just trying to support people who are telling timely stories. <laughs> Damn, you're so cool. Like what isn't like like what have you discovered in your research in terms of like what people are creating like are there any like broad trends with like the types of technologies people are using yeah well so I, I will say that something that becomes immediately apparent and maybe is obvious to to all of you all is that a lot of this work is very coastal um and so a lot yeah. of support like a lot of support for many of many types of art is very coastal and so I would I would like to see more support for this kind of work, um, new media emerging technology work in the South. Like I want more labs, digital art labs in the South. I want more in the Midwest. And so lifting up people who are kind of doing this in very DIY ways, I, I'm like, it's so hard to find people. You know, it's like, um, it's a rabbit hole. So I'm like, if if anyone is listening in the Midwest or in the South and is doing something interesting, like, please hit me up. Like, I, I want to know about your work. Wow, you yeah. heard it here first. <laughs> yeah, I feel like that's something that we've talked about, too. It's it's like bi-coastal elite or, or like whatever or that... Or the, quote, creatives are. Yeah, I mean, just like the... I feel like it's easy to forget being based in, like, city centers of the East Coast, how how much, like, resources and opportunities are really really just here and not spread out mm -hmm. um that's a yeah that's a really great point um is there any any is there anyone or any art maker that you've come across that you're really excited about like any specific like projects work that people are doing so many um so i love so i'm okay so i'm part of a collective called refresh that is like an informal network of women and gender non-binary folks in art and technology and sciences. Um, so like a lot of people that are part of that network, like Heather Dewey Hagborg, Dorothy Santos, um, I love their work and their research. They're 
they both work in um, bio art and biotech. And so, which is like a whole new space of technology and science that I'm like, I don't know what, I don't even know how to like, I took one class where I like extracted DNA from a strawberry and I was like, woo, I know science. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know? more than like, me. <laughs> I don't think I even Bio got that far. Bio yeah, class no. that was. I was like, yeah. And we made necklaces from it. It was Gen Space. Shout out Gen Space in downtown Brooklyn. Oh wow! You can take bio art workshops. Wow, cool. Yeah, I have no, I have no sense of what that could possibly. What is, what is that extracting the DNA? Like, what does that look? How do you make something from that? It's so abstracting. I don't even know. Well, what is? I mean, what does comprise some of this work that that's bio art? So okay, so Heather has made her own virus that she's calling Love Sick, and so. Um, She's done this in partnership with other scientists. And what it does is um, uh, it infects the human host with a gene that increases the production of oxytocin. So this, you know, this is the hormone that is impl- uh, that increases the feelings of love and bonding, monogamy and devotion, empathy and connection. And so, I mean, it's totally speculative. But if you were to, you know, if we were to take this lovesick virus, then we would feel more empathetic potentially is like... So is she like currently like developing this in a lab or is it more of a con- conceptual like thread? She's made it in a lab and oh, she shit. exhibits it. But it's like this beautiful like neon hormone, <laughs> like liquidy Whoa. goo stuff. I don't know. Yeah, my science. Is I wonder what would happen. If, <laughs> what would happen if somebody volunteered to like be infected? Be like with the it? first, I, yeah, like, to be like the trial, the first test. <laughs> That's so interesting. Wow. Yeah. Well. I think, I mean, we have sort of two more questions that we'd like to ask. And because Isabel always makes fun of me about how I ask her about her childhood all the time, like her therapist. I'm like, so tell you about your childhood. It's actually been very helpful. I like to do this with our guests, too. I mean, I know we asked you a bit earlier about your upbringing and how that's shaped who you are. But something that I like to think about often is, I don't know, like, um, a message or a thought or a piece of advice that you would give to like your childhood self. I tend to always think about anytime I'm in a really like intensely anxious or crazy places, think about myself as this like chubby 10 year old and like what I would tell, (laughs) what I would tell that 10 year old. So yeah, thinking about that, like what would you tell a 10 year old Salome if you had, you know, the ability to time travel (laughs) <laughs> to, to, to speak to her and also i'd also want to know who who was 10 year old salome like what was she Ooh. who was she okay um so <laughs> i'm just thinking about 10 year old me <laughs> <laughs> well please please share i mean i think she was like a little anxious and like but like really excited about school like my uncle recently told me the story about how i had to miss school one day and i was like upset which is like so nerdy i'm like oh i hate that it was that person i love it i love it i don't even remember her um but i think what i would tell her is that um there might not be a name for what you want to do and that's okay i think that you know we come from um we come from a generation of folks who specialized and kind of had career paths and um, I think for a long time I was nervous about not knowing where I fit in. And now that I'm here and I'm doing 
fine. (laughs) More than fine. Yeah, beyond fine. (laughs) Creating your own lane. It's, but I wish someone told me early on that like you can invent a job for yourself and that we don't know what work is going to look like in the future and that, you know what, the future might embrace the hybrid and the multi-hyphenate and like that's okay. So, yeah, and thank the, you. And that the future might have a need for tasks that didn't that that didn't exist before. <laughs> that part, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I actually feel really the same way. I would like. I feel like I had a lot of anxiety about what you know what what bucket I would I would fall into, <laughs> and now I'm like that was a huge waste of time. Yeah, to all the all that concern. Um, well, I guess I mean you've told us a little bit about current projects, and obviously you were doing a million things, and I don't quite know how. <laughs> But um, what are some future things on the horizon that you're excited for? Yeah, so I'm working with my good friend, director Keenan McWilliam on a project um, that will happen at the end of September on the High Line. And so we've been thinking about um, hand clapping games um, as like a storytelling practice um, and just all the play that comes with it. And so we're developing... um, a hand clapping game that tells the history and and projects some future visions of the Highline Park, especially as it's um, situated to the newly opened Hudson Yards project, which, which is also kind of this, I mean, there's so much to say about the Hudson Yards project, but it is also like this t- test playground of um, what a smart city could look like. Um, so just thinking about, again, data collection and wealth and um, proximity to power and um so yeah so all of that will happen <laughs> in a hand clapping game hopefully <laughs> what is the process of creating a hand hand clapping game so we're watching just a bunch of hand clapping games we're asking people about hand clapping games they grew up playing we're reaching back to the far corners of our mind trying to remember the way hand clapping numbers games yeah, i feel like i <laughs> yeah. just had a, a crazy like nostalgia injection from wait the, what from games me. did you guys play growing up i don't know what they were called and i was never good at them they were always extremely complicated the ones that were going on at, at my school but they, like like there were certain people who were tr- like artists of these games yeah that's so interesting I don't remember the lyrics to Miss Susie off the top of my head, but Miss Susie was like a game I loved because it was a style of hand clapping where the song, the last word would have been a bad word, but then it flipped oh. to start a new sentence. And I know that one. I know that. And there's like this little like sexual thing yeah. that it turned into something else. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. dang, I wish I remembered that. Oh, yeah, Numbers, Quack Delioso. No, yeah, I definitely used to have, like, little tournaments. Yes. Oh, my gosh, I'm excited. Okay, so if people want to keep up to up to date with, like, what you're doing, they want to come to this project in the High Line and keep up abreast about everything that's going on with you, like, how does one do that? Mm-hmm. Besides Googling you. <laughs> Just easy. There, I mean, you can follow me on Instagram, computers.puting, or my website, salome.zone. You heard it. Salome.zone. It has been that is that is wow. (laughs) It's been such a pleasure to chat with you. Thank you. And be inspired by you. This was so fun. Yes. You are now tuning into Top Rank Podcast. This is Marcel. And this is Isabel. And you can follow us at at Top Rank Podcast. Thank you so much to Hassan, our sound engineer, and to Salome and to Red Bull for hosting us. Yeah, until next time. Bye. Bye. See me on the road and you're not call out to me. Dream, see me in my pants and tea. See me 
Give me a heart attack Give me a 